The violent and malevolent character of Bill Sykes, brutally murdered, is living lover Nancy in Charles Dickens' novel Oliver Twist. The book paints a vivid picture of the tightly packed slums of Victorian London, and the reader can be forgiven for thinking debauchery and immorality lurked around every corner in the capital. But was this really the case? Were Bill and Nancy drawn from real life, or were they merely figments of Charles Dickens' imagination? University of Warwick legal historian Professor Rebecca Probert has been exploring the prevalence of cohabitation during the Victorian era, and she found a real-life Nancy and Bill. Susan Owen and William Badger Wilson were cohabiting in the 1850s in Banbury. Susan was a prostitute, and Bill was said to be a debased specimen who existed on the proceeds of her prostitution. Like Bill and Nancy, their relationship ended in brutal murder, but is the story all that it appears? Who are this tragic couple and how did you come across their story? Well, I first came across the story of Susan Owen and William Wilson in a chapter by the historical demographer Peter Laslett. And he said that there was a survey of Banbury in which five out of eight houses were occupied by cohabiting couples in 1850 and that um, neighbouring household included a labourer, Badger Wilson, who lived with Susan Owen, his housekeeper, a prostitute whom he finally murdered. And his source for this was a, a 1996 article by a local historian who sort of put it more colourfully, saying that Wilson was known in Banbury's underworld as Badger Wilson, was a debased specimen of immorality who subsisted for years on the wages of her infamy and in 1858 was convicted of murdering her. And this, of course, immediately evoked for me the, the story of Bill Sykes and Nancy in, in Oliver Twist, another mid-Victorian couple who, who lived together without any question of being married and whose relationship ended in a brutal murder. So what actually happened to them? What was the story? Well, the story actually underlines the importance of checking all secondary sources because when I did a little bit more digging, I found out it wasn't quite as, as Laslett and this local historian had suggested. Now, Susan Owen did indeed meet her death in 1858 after an evening in one of the local beer houses. Um, whether it was caused directly by Wilson is rather murky from the evidence. There's a lot of witnesses who say how they were leaving the pub together, she was heard to fall over several times in the courtyard. Whether she fell because she was pushed or whether she was just so drunk she couldn't stand up doesn't appear. Um, one witness gave evidence of hearing him trying to coax her up the stairs in their lodging house, saying, come on, Sue, let's see if we can get you up here. And the jury wasn't convinced that it was murder, and Wilson was acquitted. And it seems that he never married. Two years later, we find him living as a boarder in somebody's household, still in Nathrop. And 20 years later, we find him as a pauper in the workhouse. So why did you look at Nathrop in particular? I mean, well, was, it, was it quite similar to London at this time? Well, I looked at it because I was exploring the extent of cohabitation in Victorian London and because it had been specifically identified as a place where cohabitation was common. And it's been suggested by a number of commentators that many of the poor, the irreligious um, and the criminal lived together without formal marriage and Nathrop had a large proportion of all three. 
The other reason for looking at it was that it was the subject of a couple of investigations in 1850 that supplemented the information from the census. So there was a public health inspection that was carried out, largely because the sanitary conditions were so poor as to threaten moral and physical decay. And the other survey was carried out at the direction of the vicar, who wanted to know more about the religious affiliation of those resident there. So you've got a really detailed um, set of information about the residents. And how did this compare to London? Of course it depends which part of London Mm. you look at, but I think you can certainly draw parallels between this particular community and some of the the less salubrious parts of London that, that Dickens describes so powerfully in novels such as Oliver Twist. So the implication is that this couple lived together and they weren't married. To what extent was cohabitation the norm in Victorian society? Well, it was absolutely not the norm. It was extremely rare. Now, as I mentioned, Laslett claimed that it was particularly common in Nathrop and that five out of eight couples in one street were cohabiting. And again, on further investigation, this turned out not to be the case. The the five couples to start with, um, there were never five at any one time. There was two in the 1850 survey and there were two in the 1851 census. And the fifth couple were actually brother and sister and so not cohabiting at all. And if one pans out from that one street to the the whole of Nathrop, which is a community of getting on for 5,000 people, you find 15 households containing a man and a housekeeper, which is um, what Laslett and Trinder, the other local historian, inferred meant a cohabiting couple. Now, of course, the first thing to say is that housekeeper doesn't necessarily indicate cohabitant at all. The Victorians didn't have a concept of cohabitant in the census. And at least some of those 15 definitely weren't cohabiting with the head of the household. They were clearly there um, in a domestic capacity. And again, if one looks at those who are living together and described as husband and wife, you can trace marriages for the vast majority of those. And this is where modern genealogical tools really come into play, because previous people have done this kind of work, but have been required to do it manually, looking at the actual paper registers. And of course, tracing marriages that way takes an enormous amount of time. But when you can use electronic databases, you can pick up 80% very quickly. Picking up the last... 20% takes time, but you can do it. So for Nathrop, um, I've already traced about 95% um, of marriages for the couples listed as husband and wife, and I'm working on the last 5%. So the Victorian society that you've discovered through your research, how does that compare with the picture we get from Dickens' writings? I think it complements it rather than contradicting it. I think Dickens is such a a powerful writer. He really evokes the underworld of London, um, the rookeries, the thieves, the prostitutes, the outcasts. But although couples like Sykes and Nancy did exist, they were certainly not the norm, and Dickens is never suggesting that they are. 
his descriptions are so powerful that they may mislead the reader into thinking this is actually more common than it than it is. So we need to do this kind of work to put Dickens' descriptions in context. Do you think that he's putting almost a magnifying glass over something that might be happening in different forms in London? It's always almost by definition the exceptional that makes a good story. Mm-hmm. And Dickens told fantastic stories, but we have to remember that A, what he's telling is a story. It may have happened in real life as well, but it's probably not representative of broader social trends. So a lot of historians rely on the claims of Henry Mayhew, journalist writing around the same time as Dickens in the 1850s. And he's very famous for doing this whole series on London labour and the London poor. And in an article entitled Marriage and Concubinage, he claimed that only one-tenth, the outside one-tenth of costermonger couples are actually married. And he made a similar claim for patterers. These are these all different types of street sellers. Now, shortly after he pu- published these claims, there was actually a meeting of the street sellers who were so indignant about what Mayhew had said about them. And so one costermonger, to the accompaniment of cheers, declared these claims to be a downright falsehood, while a patterer protested in the names of their poor but honest wives against those statements which depicted them as the most depraved of their sex. So we have a direct rebuttal from these people. Now, of course, we can't accept their word for it at face value any more than we should accept Mayhew's claims at face value. But I think there's one very powerful reason why they're more likely to be telling the truth. Well, two very powerful reasons, actually. The first is that Mayhew apparently got a lot of his information from paid informers. He did not do any kind of count of costermongers to come up with that figure of of one-tenth. So that's just based entirely on hearsay, in the first place. The second reason why I think we should believe the costermongers themselves rather than Mayhew's account of them is that they actually invited Mayhew to several of their meetings and said, look, we want to discuss this with you. And he kept refusing to come. Mm. And they said in um, their, their article that we think this, you know, the reader will judge for themselves who is more likely to be telling the truth. We've given him the opportunity to defend his claims in a public meeting and he's just not willing to turn up. But they also noted, quite presciently, that Mayhew was more likely to be believed in the long term because he had the public platform, he had published pages and pages of this stuff about costermongers and all they could manage was a little mention in an obscure newspaper that was willing to publish their meeting 